Hi everybody, I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. everybody this is katie from the future and i just wanted to let you guys know that there is no buffer this week and that's mainly because the holidays kind of got a hold of us and we totally forgot to come back and record this before it came out so we're just gonna go ahead and roll into trigger warnings this week and our disclaimer while we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime it's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox, or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. episode, we will be discussing cases involving more than one of the following. Children, sexual assault, domestic violence, and suicide. As always, listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know has a child who has been victimized, please call the proper authorities and look at missingkids.org or call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's hotline at 800-843-5678. Seven, eight, for more helpful resources. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673. If you or someone you know has been a victim of domestic violence, please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. And if you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Now, back to the show. So, welcome back from our trigger warnings. Today we're going to talk about like a deep dive topic, which I think this is actually my first one that I've done. And I wanted to do this before we go further into discussing any other serial killers on the podcast. So today we're going to talk a little bit about how serial killers work, possible psychology, and physiological reasons behind why they do what they do. I think that sounds good. Definitely seems like we got enough serial killers under our belt that we should probably discuss the basics of, of serial killers. Serial killer 101. Yeah, serial killer 101. I feel like I actually haven't ever heard like a podcast do this. However, it might be a different podcast that I've never listened to before, but... For the most part, you hear a lot of the terminology come in of like McDonald's triad and like certain warning signs that display upwards to a serial killer. However, people don't really break it down as to where it relates in that function or where this typology is coming from or what it means per se. So before we get started, though, I do want to note that there is a little more heavier topic towards mental health with these things, and I just want you to know that if you do suffer from any of the mental illnesses that I might list in here, it 
absolutely does not mean that you're going to be a serial killer. Please don't take it as that. Like, it's just correlations that scientists have found to serial killers having these mental disorders as well. I think that's really important to note since there's already a lot of stigma around mental health. And that's definitely something we both value on this podcast. Well, and in our lives, obviously, is uh, breaking down the stigma that surrounds mental health and just the value of having good mental health and engaging in good practices for that and understanding that uh, people can struggle with mental health and that is totally okay. It's just like physical health that everybody's got issues that they're working through. So I definitely appreciate you voicing that, that just because you may be struggling with some mental health issues, that does not mean <laughs> that one day you will be a serial killer. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be like, snap and go. That That's not what we're talking about here. And if you do feel the urge to injure yourself or somebody else, we do ask that you please seek proper medical attention and therapy or psych psychiatry for those urges. Definitely. There is help and resources out there, and it's nothing to be ashamed of asking for help, and there's definitely uh, lots of good resources out there if you're in need of it. Absolutely, and I believe that we still have the suicide hotline listed in our trigger warnings, but I will make sure to also put it in the show notes for this week, too. So, getting started, we're going to go ahead and run through the definition of a serial killer again. So, Gerberth's textbook, Practical Homicide Investigation, defines serial murder as two or more separate murders where an individual is either acting alone or with another to commit multiple homicides over a period of time with breaks between each murder event. The FBI defines serial murder as the killing of three or more separate victims on separate occasions with an emotional cool-down period between each of the killings. These cooldown periods can range from days to weeks to months or even years between victims. During this emotional cool-off period, the perpetrator may reflect on what they did, such as dwelling on the pleasure that he or she may have felt and the horrifying treatment of the murder of another human being. This individual may also contemplate the effectiveness of their approach to the victim and if they achieved the ends desired. So serial killers are generally described in media as intelligent, charismatic, streetwise, charming, and generally good looking, which I think we can all kind of point towards Ten Bundy with that definition, because my God. But <laughs> I'm not even gonna like, okay, to be fair, like when people are like, oh, Ted Bundy's so hot. I'm like, my mind when I see him goes to the seal from Finding Dory. <laughs> I, I don't find Ted Bunny attractive. I understand where people could, but myself, I don't see him as an attractive human, human being. I don't. Especially when knowing the horror that he committed. Like, absolutely not. Not attractive whatsoever. I'm going to have to look up a photo of him after the, this episode <laughs> recording now and get my opinion on if I think he looks like the seal from Finding Dory. I think he looks like the seal from Finding Dory. Um, <laughs> most serial killers are mobile individuals capable of traveling any number of miles to search for the right victim, usually targeting a certain type of victim. The right victim is usually a person who is vulnerable and easy to control. This may be either a male or a female. This may include, but is not limited to children, vagrants, sex workers, individuals living in a high-risk lifestyle, minority groups, and individuals of LGBTQ plus status. Now, We've also discussed this topic before when we talk about missing persons with the less than dead terminology coined by Stephen Edgars. It defines the lack of prestige and power for these victims along with the lower social economical status and grouping of them that makes their deaths seem as though they never were. And unfortunately, this is a group that serial killers prey upon the most. I would imagine, honestly, that's probably the group that there is easiest to get away with it mm -hmm. just because of the nature of the 
less than dead category of a lot of those people don't have uh what's the word i don't know how to word it but basically like they may not have people that would notice immediately if something happened to them because they may not be in stable homes or in a kind of workplace that would uh report that kind of thing to the police or anything so it's Mm -hmm. definitely a unfortunate situation that these people should not have to worry about these things but unfortunately get targeted by some of these people yeah and we'll see as we go forward with the typologies how certain killers will actually specifically target one certain group over another so it's also important to note that most serial offenders don't have a larger intelligence than most of society In fact, most of them fall into the average range. The ones that were mostly above average in range were ones that actually created explosives or bombs. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. What serial killers usually have that makes them so cunning is the streetwise skills. This usually helps them to avoid detection and apprehension for good amounts of time. Also, serial killers are often extremely manipulative and often are able to talk to their victims in a way that puts them into a sense of comfort or as other like interviews stated, the comfort zone. For example, posing as a person in need of help, being an appliance man or worker there to help you, utility workers that are there to help the general population. This obviously does not mean that any of these people necessarily fall into that spectrum of serial killers. However, to quote a little bit of morbid here, if you have somebody that walks up and asks you for help, they don't need it, okay? Turn away, walk away. And if you are a child and a stranger comes up to you and says, I need your help with something, no, they fucking don't. (laughs) They don't need your help. (laughs) <laughs> An important thing to teach your kids is an adult should never be coming to you for help. Like, they should be finding another adult to help them, not mm-hmm. you. So that's definitely a run to mommy, daddy, or another trustworthy adult at that point to Yeah, absolutely. And to quote fucking my favorite murder, fuck politeness. Turn away, walk <laughs> away, okay? You need to make a scene, draw attention to yourself, whatever you need to do to get the hell away from that person and out of that situation. Now, additionally, if the victim is a female, it's often found that she may resemble other victims in a serial killer's lineup. For example, hair or personal occupation. Hmm, I didn't think of occupation. Mm-hmm. So when they say occupation, they look towards more sex workers. Yeah. Strangely, waitresses also hit that category. Oh, okay. Yeah, I knew sex workers was definitely a category that's targeted, mm-hmm. but I didn't think of waitresses. And I think the other one was bartenders that I saw. I was like, huh, okay. that is interesting. Huh. Okay. So according to the late criminal profiler, Robert Russell... These individuals have conscious, detailed plans for murder. Often, these plans are improved upon with each successful killing. Each new experience gives the offender insight into their next murder. Now, the FBI's Behavioral Research Unit that basically studies serial killers and the psychology behind them to be able to profile them better in an investigation process may categorize serial killers into an organized and disorganized category. So this kind of makes Robert Russell's statement somewhat true, but also somewhat false. Now, we're going to break into these categories for a little bit. The organized killer usually plans out how the crime should go and clears away any evidence to prevent any future discovery of their identity. These killers may also engage and purposeful post-mortem mutilation. This is usually done to hinder the identification of a victim, shock value, or allow ease of transport for a body. For example, a serial murderer in New York City removed the heads and hands of two sex workers to prevent identification of the victims. In another case, 
of the same killer, the breasts of the victims were removed and left on the bedside table to desecrate the body and humiliate the woman in an instance, but also do shock factor to investigators coming into the scene later. A serial killer may also display the body in a position for shock value or go to extreme and elaborate detail to dispose of a body to ensure that it is never found. These individuals may also maintain respectable lifestyles and engage in regular sexual relations. However, do not likely have a satisfactory relationship with anyone. They're typically antisocial individuals invested in self-gratification. These individuals will also most likely increase their killings and decrease their cool-off period in order to maintain an equilibrium between fantasy and physical highs that they attain through their attacks, leading to more bold and disregarding reckless-based killings, which usually get them caught. The disorganized killer, on the other hand, may have a crime scene that exhibits just that definition. It's very spontaneous and chaotic, and there's little to haphazard attempts to conceal any evidence. These are individuals who would fit into the clinical definition of psychotic and are in minority as they lack the ability and wherewithal to repeatedly escape apprehension. As we know, serial murder is not new. However, it is important to note that it is rare. So don't go freaking out too fast that <laughs> yeah. there's, there's these people everywhere because it, it is very rare. In historical commentaries regarding serial killings, poison murders were actually used by Roman rulers to dispose of their enemies. Additionally, reasons for serial murder have been explored for some time, as well as many diverse reasons behind the heinous behavior, some of which are listed as being demonic possession, biological factors, emotional detachment, early childhood trauma, lack of infant attachment to the mother, watching sex and violence on television, sexual arousal, vigilantism, lack of available psychiatric treatment, greed, the list just kind of goes on as you go forward in time. Yeah. Which, to say, like, just because you watch, like, violent television when you were younger doesn't mean that you're going to be a violent adult. Yeah. Like, a lot of these things doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a violent person. Yeah, it's not necessarily a direct causal agent. Mm Mm-hmm. Before going into the typologies, though, I'm going to mention some characteristics that usually characterize serial murders. There is generally no prior relationship between the victim and the attacker. Subsequent murders are done at different times. However, they will usually maintain a general geographical orientation, meaning that they're kind of locally based. You may see one that's outside of a jurisdiction, but that's kind of it. The subsequent murders will appear to have no connection to the initial murder. The motive is usually not for material gain, but for the murderer's desire to have power and dominance over a victim. The victim may have been symbolically valuable to the murderer or are perceived to have little status or prestige and in instances are unable to defend themselves or alert others to their situation. Crimes will often be sadistic and repetitive in nature, and in most instances are sexually oriented. This next one, well, these next two, in my opinion, pertain more towards organized killers versus like disorganized killers and serial killers in general. They research their craft and adjust their operations as required to access and control victims, as well as thwart the police investigation. They may plan their murders, their escape and approach routes, and the site of their attack, as well as the disposal site for their victims' bodies afterwards. So, now that we're done with that, let's move into some typologies of serial killers. So, motives and methods arise as a key aspect of how we label serial killers for the purpose of studying them. However, it's important to note 
here that serial killers are not bound to or by one typology. In fact, typologies can overlap at times and normally do. Hmm. Okay. Different serial killers have different motives for their crimes, and while some infamous killers have a sexual sadism-based motive, others may not. The four classifications developed by Holmes and DeBerger in 1988 were visionary, mission, hedonistic, and power or control killers. So we're going to start with the hedonistic killer. This killer is usually broken down into three subcategories as lust, thrill, and comfort killers. They most likely commit these acts for fun or enjoyment. Lust killers are regarded as having purely sexual motivation, meaning that sexual pleasure is the goal. This killer may torture the victim sexually in both anti-mortem and post-mortem stages. This includes, but is not limited to, biting, whipping, burning, electrocuting, and in some instances, forcing a victim to consume caustic substances such as cleaning fluid. Thrill killers, though, are individuals that once the murder is committed, they will go to great efforts to clean up the crime scene and avoid any form of detection. This satisfaction for this killer is the pain they inflict upon their victims and that thrill that may extend past a victim's death. Such killers go to great lengths to avoid detection so they may continue to kill. Then there's the comfort killer. This individual kills usually for material gain, although they may derive other satisfaction from their murders, but this is what is the overarching goal. This killer will carefully select victims as compared to random victims of other serial killers. So, the next typology is the visionary killer. These individuals may seem similar to the mission serial killer as we continue onwards, but specifically in selecting their victim types. This killer may suffer from psychosis, which is a result in a total break from reality. The killer may hear voices or experience hallucinations where they are being told to kill. The murderer is generally un planned, and the killer may not even bring a weapon with them. They tend to keep within a label of disorganized killer, and the murder scene will most likely be chaotic. The visionary killer is typically the most popular serial killer depicted in entertainment, usually as an archetypical or classic serial killer in movies and TV. Prosecution and trials may be complicated, as there is a question of the killer's legal sanity, and if this person should be in psychiatric treatment, other treatment facilities, or in prison. So if they don't bring a weapon to the scene, does that mean they're just using whatever's available in the environment? Usually. Okay. It can be that, or it can be just simply strangulation, too. Oh, yeah, that's true. The mission serial killer is an individual who may regard their victims as being useless to society or even blights that need to be removed. This killer may believe that it is their responsibility to cleanse society from the meaningless creatures. Now, this is just an example, but it is a common one that is seen with the mission-style serial killer, but it's the religious misguided zealot that may consider sex work as repugnant to an extent that only by killing these individuals can society be made whole again. These individuals usually will hold themselves up on a godlike pedestal and see it as a quest to rid society from their definition of evil. Very few of these serial killers, though, will ever commit suicide when threatened with capture, which I guess is somewhat good news. Does that mean the other categories are more likely to commit suicide if threatened with capture, or is it just kind of based on an individual case? I think it's based more on an individual case. According to Gerber's textbook, this was definitely something that just didn't really happen with these types of killers. Like, when they're threatened with capture, they usually don't try to attempt suicide or really anything. Yeah, I mean, I guess, thinking about it, uh, some religions believe suicide means you cannot go to heaven. So if their killing is religious 
faced depending on what religion they're coming from mm-hmm. and what beliefs they hold that they may believe that suicide would not allow them to go where they need to go absolutely after life. and that can be another factor that portrays into this certain type of killer as well i didn't even think of that now there's the power or the control killer this individual will display a need to be in control or to manipulate their victim If this killer cannot find someone who fits their ideal victim type and they feel the desire to kill is strong enough, they may kill the next person that they encounter. This individual is usually driven by sexual fantasy and fulfilling the ideology with killing. This feeling of power or control is argumentably present in most serial killers. However, there are cases where it isn't. Now, there are arguments to be stated for female serial killers and that they are very different from male serial killers. And the typologies that we went through just now don't adequately address females. So, there are a total of nine female serial killer types. Jeez, the ladies get a lot I of know. typologies. I'm like, wow. <laughs> wow. Which, <laughs> it's like they're not as in-depth as, like, the four that we just went into and honestly they all have points that point back to the four but we're just gonna run through them real quick so the first is the black widow killer this individual will kill their spouses or other family members angels of death usually kill those in a healthcare setting the sexual predator which is murders committed in sexual homicide for sexual acts the revenge serial killer, which is murders of passion or revenge upon the victim. The prophet for crime, the killer who kills simply for material gain. The teen killer, killers that kill with a partner, and usually the partner is a intimate partner. Question of sanity. The question of sanity individuals is the question if they are legally insane. And then there is unexplained and unsolved. These are typical cases where it's believed that the female serial killer is responsible, but the reason why is still undetermined. The angel of death um, type, does that mean they're like professionals in that workplace? Like it's a doctor or a nurse who is killing, or does that mean it's an outsider coming into the health uh, facility and killing? So when looking into medical homicide, it is usually somebody in the healthcare setting. And with angels of death, typically they are a nurse or a caregiver. Huh. Okay. Now, what's the difference between male and female killers? Females are usually thought to kill for instrumental reasons like financial gain rather than sexual fantasy. Although this isn't entirely true as there are women who do kill for the sexual thrill. Although a sexual sadist female serial killer is very rare. Additionally, it wasn't until the early 1990s that it was believed that women could even commit serial killings. In fact, prior to 1984, it was thought to be impossible. Oh, I mean, I feel like female sexuality was also a question for a long time in history of if women can experience sexual pleasure. So, I mean, there's a lot of questions about us females that took a while to be answered. Yeah, I'm like, mm, I wonder how many others have gotten away with it for so long just because, oh, women can't kill like that. They're in the kitchen. Just that, like... Masculine ideology of women. I'm like, oh, God, how many got away with it just because of that? (laughs) A woman belongs in the kitchen, not off serial killing. (laughs) Not off serial killing. How dare you, Betty? Meanwhile, Betty's like, let me just stir this arsenic into your food. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, these beliefs on the men just led to their death, apparently, in these cases. (laughs) They could not suspect a woman. Uh... So, like I said before, motivations behind female serial killings are often for personal gain and instant gratification. Many women claim to have committed murders due to sexual abuse that they suffered earlier in their lives, though. Regardless, though, due to the lack of study and newsworthiness of female serial killers, 
motives and maintaining consistent theories as to why these individuals kill remains elusive. Additionally, most females charged with serial murders have a counterpart, which leads us to our next point, team killers. Team killers usually consist of two males, but can also consist of a male and a female. And in very rare cases, it is a female-only team. Huh. Okay. Generally, the number is consistent of two individuals, one of which is a dominant member of the group guiding the actions of the pair, and the second is a more submissive individual just simply following orders. However, that doesn't exclude you from being a murderer. Okay? <laughs> I just did what he told me to do. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> do not pass go. Do not collect $100. You go to jail. You go straight to jail. <laughs> also, one part of the team is usually significantly older than the other part. And this happens in 50% of team serial killer groups. It's complete guesswork and speculation usually to presume that if one or both of the members had killed or would kill when working independently of the other. Usually when these individuals are caught, there is one side of the party that will place a majority of the blame on the other party. Or both will do it. Which is kind of entertaining to watch. <laughs> now does the team typology, like, does that normally correlate with another specific typology? Or is it just kind of like they could really go with any one of those other typologies? They could really go with any of those other typologies. A lot of the ones that I've seen, like for example, the Moore's killers were sexually motivated. There are certain ones that are more financially motivated and they look for basically material and financial gain by posing as caretakers. So you get those like double angel of death killers going, especially in female-female situations where they're kind of like trying to rob this individual of possibly welfare checks or Medicaid checks, anything to kind of get a little bit more money into their pocket while also draining the victim. Huh. Okay. So let's look at a little bit of the psychology behind a serial killer. And the most popular... One that I hear constantly is the McDonald's triad. The McDonald's triad is a presumption that animal cruelty, fire setting, and bedwetting in childhood is an indicative factor that later aggressive and violent behavior will happen in adulthood. This is usually referred to the precursor of serial and sexual murders. It was first coined by John McDonald in 1963 in his article entitled The Threat to Kill, which observed three coincidental behaviors which were unique to most of his aggressive and sadistic patients. In this article, McDonald wrote he based his findings on 100 patients from the Colorado Psychopathic Hospital, who had reportedly threatened to kill somebody or had possibly killed somebody based on personal interviews. McDonald identified that bedwetting past the age of five, animal cruelty, and setting fires in childhood should all be considered warning signs for later aggression in adulthood. According to this theory, the three behaviors occurring together or as a combination of two or more should identify that the child is at risk of becoming a violent adult and could continue to be further linked to specific types of crimes and criminal offenses, including sexual sadists, arsonists, and most prevalently, serial murders. Now, you might be getting to this, so if so, don't jump ahead just for me, but I was wondering... <laughs> Uh, so if, per se, somebody figured out their kid was exhibiting all three of these behaviors, which I know would be super rare, but if they did, like, what do you even do at that point? <laughs> do you be like, okay, my kid needs therapy? Do you take him to a doctor? Like, what what do you do? <laughs> so we'll, we're going to break this down a little bit because there are some medical issues that come to this. And unfortunately, there are some childhood trauma issues that come to this. Okay. okay. So I personally would say probably a mixture of both because you want to make sure that your kid's healthy 
but you also want to make sure that they're not going through traumatic experiences at a very young age and you want to make sure that you're getting them the help that they need. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Enuresis is the first of the three behaviors and is referred to as the unintentional bedwetting during sleep that persists past the age of five years old. The theoretical basis for the association between enuresis and antisocial tendencies stems from Freud's proposition that urination was erotic and bedwetting was an act of sexual frustration. However, it has become more known that enuresis can be a medical factor that has to do with the tendency to sleep deep and the body's overproduction of urine at night. But there are other research topics that mention that this is an instance of physical or sexual intimate partner violence with a woman and husband in the house and simply the child is bearing witness to this or may be a victim themselves. This may lead to the behavior problems such as nightmares, bedwetting, timidity, and aggressive behavior. The next on this list is animal cruelty, which is the intentional cause of unnecessary pain, suffering, distress, or possibly death to an animal. This has a very strong link with children who have experienced abuse themselves as a victim or as a witness, most likely from an adult or another person in authoritative power that they look up to. And as we know, most children who do experience intimate partner violence at a young age are most likely to continue the cycle onto other individuals or animals weaker than them. And it can also most likely continue into adulthood. However, there are also specific motivations listed for possible behavior and cruelty to animals, which is control factors, retaliation against the animal for something that they did, satisfying a prejudice against a certain species or a breed, for example, snakes, spiders, pit bulls. There is expressing aggression through the animal, which is teaching them to attack others on their behalf. Enhancing one's own aggressions, which is honing in violent skills and what works best for them. Shock factor, retaliation against another person, displacement of hostility from a person to an animal, and then there is also nonspecific sadism. Now, fire setting is the third in the McDonald's triad, and it was proposed to be a predictor for later violence when in conjunction with one of the two previous stated ones. It was proposed that children that set fires as a response mechanism to both internal and external stressors and usually present with difficulties in problem solving and suffer with pro-social skill deficits. And to many, setting fires represents a release of aggression for the child. However, this has also been argued to be a result of children simply being curious of fire and not fully understanding the destruction that it can have. It can also be correlated to conduct disorder, which can later elevate into antisociality in adulthood. So in the article by Perfit and Aileen in 2020, the research regarding the empirical evidence that the McDonald's triad has is still in some terms lacking. However, they did admit that while bedwetting didn't seem to provide a valid prediction for future violent behavior, they did note that the cruelty towards animals and setting fires did have more promising evidence to predict violent behaviors in the future, along with how general antisocial behavior may play a role in violent behavior in the future. Moreover, some violent offenders do exhibit one of at least three of the behaviors. However, rarely do they exhibit all three. So it's usually one to two. Now, to this, the American Homicide Textbook does mention how the McDonald's triad is usually a sign that the child has been a victim themselves of abuse, particularly from a close family member, like I had said before with some of these other topics. While this does not guarantee that a child with the McDonald's triad will become a serial killer or even engage with crime when older, it can still be a way to detect early warning signs of maladaptive behavior ahead and avoid it. So now we're going to talk about what 
I kind of described as being like the flip side of this, of what you'd see in adulthood in one of my papers early in college, and that is the dark triad. Most people don't know that term, and I kind of want to get it out there because it's definitely interesting, and you can definitely see it in a lot of characteristics of more popular killers such as Ted Bundy or Gary Ridgway, and in some cases, I think even Israel displayed these. The dark triad is characterized by three negative personality traits in adulthood. Narcissism, Machiavellianism, and subclinical psychopathy, which can all share malevolent features. Now, defining the traits, narcissism, and I found this kind of interesting, so I included it. It's actually derived from the Greek mythology story of Narcissus, who was a hunter that fell in love with his reflection and became obsessed with it to the point that he actually drowned in the pond of water. Damn. Yeah, I think actually now that you mentioned it, I think I've read that story before. I think I have too, but it's been a while. I'm like, damn. Yeah, yeah, it has been a while. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I read it when I was too young to understand what narcissism actually means. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if I read it now, it would probably make more sense. (laughs) Narcissism can be classified by selfish, arrogant, lacking empathy, boastfulness, and sensitivity to criticism or insults. Individuals will usually have an entitled or superiority complex while masking a typical sense of inadequacy. Machiavellianism is associated with traits of manipulation, self-interest, lack of emotion, absence of morality, and deceit. Essentially, these types of individuals are highly manipulative and are willing to ruthlessly deceive others to obtain what they desire while having a genuinely cynical view on the world. Now, we're going to pause here real quick because we're going to talk about antisocial personality disorder or ASPD for short and psychopathy as these are two that regularly get mixed up and I saw that it was getting mixed up in the article that I was reading. So psychopathy is a condition characterized by personality traits of an individual being unable to feel guilt, deceitfulness, and usually having poor impulse control. There's a line to be drawn here with ASPD though. Persons with psychopathic personalities are not necessarily aggressive and psychopathy should not be confused with psychosis, which is a disconnection from reality. Now, Antisocial personality disorder, which is sometimes called sociopathy, is a mental disorder in which a person consistently shows no regard for right or wrong and completely ignores the feelings of others. People with antisocial personality disorder tend to antagonize, manipulate, or treat others harshly or with callous indifference. These individuals will show no guilt or remorse for their behaviors, and these individuals will often violate laws and become involved with criminal acts. They may regularly lie, behave violently or impulsively, and have an issue with substance abuse, being either drugs or alcohol. To add on to this one, when they lie, they can sometimes full-heartedly believe that their lie is the truth. Because of these characteristics, it makes it very difficult or impossible to fulfill responsibilities related to family, work, or school. People with antisocial personality disorder are very unlikely to seek help on their own as they don't see anything as being a problem. It is also important to note here that while antisocial personality disorder is considered a lifelong diagnosis, In some cases, certain symptoms may decrease over time, specifically looking at the violent tendencies or criminal-based tendencies. However, it's not fully clear if it has decreased as a result of aging or if it was an increase of awareness of consequences that come from behaving in these ways. The dark triad personality usually will have individuals who will say or do practically anything to get their way, and they lack normal human needs for beneficial social interaction. This includes having compassion, empathy, and a moral compass. 
while having an argumented view of themselves and will be shameless about self-benefiting. These individuals are likely to be rash and engage in dangerous behaviors, even committing crimes, without regard to how their actions impact or affect others. Individuals who do have this toxic combination of personality traits are more likely ready to exploit individuals closest to them and experience very little remorse when inflicting harm upon others. And individuals that display the dark triad are also very good at masking and concealing their true nature. In fact, when you first meet an individual that might display some of the dark triad, you may actually be swooned by them and they come across as very charismatic and charming. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't really sure where to put this with everything else going on, but I think this is probably the best space. We're going to talk a little bit about physical trauma affecting individuals, but this also kind of goes in with that mental psychological section too. So out of 239 eligible killers, a study conducted by the University of Glasgow wanted to find what the cause could possibly be to elicit such violent behavior with the potential of leading to prevention strategies in the future. In the study, it was found that 57 adolescent offenders accused of homicide, about 67% had developmental problems in some way. However, the use of multiple and excessive violence was not related to having developmental problems. So just note that just because you might have something going on doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be violent. What they did find, though, was children with onset neuropsychiatric disorders were more commonly among violent offenders. Now, we're not going to go too much into what all these disorders were. Some of them were ADHD. Another was, um, I want to say, autism spectrum disorder, which they found very common in a lot of offenders, which was interesting, but also doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a offender if you do have an autism spectrum disorder. And while they were doing the study, they found a new category began to emerge as they kind of interviewed these people and dug into their research a little bit more. And that was head injuries in relation to serial killers. Huh. That's strange. Wouldn't have guessed that. An earlier study on head injuries in relation to killers found that approximately one in four killers had suffered either a head injury or, more rarely, a condition affecting the brain. For example, an illness like meningitis during their early years of life. Now, there are documented biographies from serial offenders that talk about early head trauma in their lives and how things seem to shift or change after that. There is also information pointing to neurochemical imbalances in addition to head trauma that may make a person act more violently towards others. So let's say that you already had like a low testosterone build because of a neurological disorder and then you have head trauma that comes along with this. It adds to that factor and it may change how things work. The brain is an interesting thing, and I, yeah. do, I do state I'm not a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a neurologist. I have a friend that's going for neurology, but I am not a neurologist. <laughs> These are simply articles that I am reading. <laughs> Additionally, this article goes into detail about how more than 60 serial murderers had psychological or physical abuse that was prevalent in their childhood, as well as significant prevalence of childhood abuse studies reported among groups of 62 male serial killers 48 percent had been rejected by a parent or another person that was really important in their lives it also found that children who were more likely to commit violent acts in adulthood were most likely victims of physical sexual or emotional abuse and they were three times more likely to be abusive people in adulthood and very violent. Wow. Others listed humiliation and narcissistic injury, which is damage to a narcissist's ego early in life as contributing to 
the murders. However, these findings do lack a comparison group drawn from non-offending populations, so it's difficult to conclude if and what extent serial killers suffer more as children than others. Yeah, I was thinking about that, how serial killers are already a very, very small percentage of the overall population. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about how many of our population uh, struggle with different some of these different mental health issues or have faced abuse early in childhood or perhaps have had a head injury early in t- childhood, I'm sure if they had a control, better control sample to compare it to, that it's still, even though these correlations are indicative of serial killers, that, like you were saying earlier, that doesn't mean if a child has struggled with these different things, they're going to become a serial killer. I'm sure it's still a very small percentage of people in the population struggling with these different things end up having violent tendencies. Oh, absolutely. And to even further go on that, there are plenty of people that have gone through shitty fucking childhoods that they didn't deserve and they didn't go on to murder people. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Or hurt others. Yeah. So this article also discussed that there is a genetic factor that may cause an individual to biologically behave more violently. However, this didn't list like a specific role or like typology that fits into biological behavior. It also didn't list as being a sole risk as we do learn from our environments. If a child was already in a state where like violent tendencies were going to be problematic from genetic view. And then you're also in a very heated environment where violence is very common, such as like intimate partner violence or domestic violence is happening. There is significantly a greater risk of becoming a criminal later in life because that's all you've known. And you're watching people like you look up to and you trust and you're just like, yeah, I want to be like my dad, but my dad hits my mom. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a big part of it, I think, is, I mean, I don't know about humans, but I know in animals, I mean, a lot of growing up as a young creature is looking up to the adults and learning from their behaviors of, you know, this is how I act. I mean, if you think like even like toddlers, like human toddlers, that's why you shouldn't cuss around a toddler is they pick up anything you say. So I feel like it's kind of same concept of really early in life. These young children are, like you said, looking up to parents Mm -hmm. or other important adult figures in their life. And if that's what they see around them is violent acts, that's just going to form in their brain as this is a normal thing. And they may not see what is morally wrong with that or what concerns there should be about that because, like you said, that's all they've ever known. So I think really that can even come down to probably more of a biological thing that when the brain's forming and you're just constantly surrounded by violence, you're going to grow up to pro not like not in all cases of course (laughs) as we said this is not something where like you said if somebody has shitty childhood that they're going to grow up to be violent but definitely it's like how we talk about a lot with the cycle of violence that if you've experienced violence before you're more likely to either continue to enter relationships that involve violence or maybe even enact violence and i'm sure it's similar with children experiencing violence they may grow up and be more likely to either be a victim or enact violence. So I think it all just kind of comes down to a lot of that, of just just how you were raised and what you saw. So even if that's not necessarily your parents telling you this is a good thing, this is what you should do, it's just all you ever saw and took in as your brain was developing. Absolutely, and then you pack that on with possible head trauma too while your brain's developing. Like, that even adds an extra layer to it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, childhood is a very detrimental time for a human, and it can really make or break them. Yeah, for sure. So, getting away from the psychology, because I don't want to dig my toes in too deep to stuff that I'm not completely familiar with, (laughs) Um, we're going to get back to some serial murder investigation. So... Serial murder investigations are often stymied because of the tendency for linkage blindness, which we've also discussed on this podcast before. Now, linkage blindness is 
what typically happens between jurisdictions and like different turfs of police departments or law enforcement agencies. This is when an investigation fails to recognize a pattern too that links one crime to another in a series of cases due to victimology, geographical location, the signature of the offender, and similarities in modus operandi and reviewing of autopsy protocols. So when I say similarities of modus operandi, there are cases where there are multiple serial killers active in a single area, which is very scary to think of, but it does happen. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then there's the signature of the offender, which usually when you do have a sexual sadist serial killer, they will leave some type of item there as their signature of this was their killing. Um, however, this may change as victims go forward or it may fade away. Starting a serial murder case entails that the investigating agency recognize that the case is as such then taking appropriate measures to legitimately sustain a task force with the necessary manpower, equipment, and resources. There is, of course, media involvement here too. And it's basically, they kind of like come in and like want information on what's going on, what's being done about this, obviously. And it's, when do you announce that task force is being created for a serial murder? and what's appropriate to discuss when it comes down to this case. Unfortunately, there are typical ways that serial killers react to a task force being created. Many serial killers have a fascination with police procedure, and unfortunately, some have even worked as police officers, reserve officers, or security guards, in which they may use this experience to avoid detection or eliminate evidence from their scene. Some have been known to visit regular police hangouts and eavesdrop on information about the ongoing case. They may even attempt to interject themselves into an investigation and attempts to assist police with the investigation. Serial killers' reaction to a task force may be as followed. The killer continues to strike and more bodies are discovered as the case continues. The more bodies or killings are discovered if they believe that the police are incompetent with their investigative process. It's also very possible that the killer will reach out to authorities to taunt them. And unfortunately, this can happen at crime scenes or after the scene as well, where they send items to media or police. For example, I believe it was BTK sent a lot of mail to the police department regarding his murders specifically taunting them and saying that you're not going to catch me. And then you can also look at how Zodiac Killer sent information into the media about his killings, two of which we'll get to eventually. Not today, but eventually. <laughs> Serial murderers are sex offenders who live and work in the same neighborhoods where they are killing blending into the community, and in some instances, establishing relationships with their victims. When the killer feels that police are close on their trail, they may travel outside of the jurisdiction to continue their murders, some of which may not ever be connected to their case. So, I think that's all I have without going into too much detail about the investigation process, just because I feel that that's not fully appropriate to talk about. But these are typical things that happen with serial murder cases, and I think it's very important to understand where this all kind of stems from. And it's a lot of research and a lot of behind the desk and a lot of out in the field work on these authors' parts. If you are interested in learning more about serial killers and serial killings, I believe that Gerber does have a serial killer investigation-based book similar to the Practical Homicide Investigation book. However, I believe it just takes the section from the uh, Practical Homicide Investigation book. I do recommend that book. However, please, if you are not prepared to see some very, very unfortunate pictures and crime scene photos, don't get it. <laughs> so, to end on a little bit of a happier note, 
while still maintaining that like dark undertone, I do have myths and facts about serial killers. <laughs> so, most of the country's most notorious serial killers were caught by accident or during some independent police action not actually related to the murder investigation. Huh. Wow. Most serial killers are male, which is false. They do make up a larger portion at 83%. However, 17% of serial killers are female. Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty good chunk of the pie. Mm-hmm. Serial killers are all insane, which is also false. Insanity is a legal term and is very, very rarely used or even prescribed to an offender. There's roughly between 2 to 4% of cases that a serial killer or offenders are typically found legally insane. They have high mobility through the United States. This typically is also false. While we did see Israel Keys as being a more mobile killer, the fact is, is that they usually stay within a geographical area close to their local area. They kill as a result of sexual abuse in childhood. This does have truth, but it also has falsifying factors under it as well. Not all people kill out of sexual abuse in childhood. Some will kill out of rejection and abandonment by a trusted childhood figure. Some serial killers cannot stop killing. This is also false as there are many serial killers that have stopped killing for several years before resuming their activities. For example, BTK. Do we know, just to interject here, do we know if there's a particular reason why a serial killer would suddenly stop and then like take a hiatus for quite a while before resuming you know i'm not entirely like sure it could be a number of reasons like there could be health reasons there could be you're afraid of getting caught maybe something else is happening in life and you're entertaining yourself on something else and then you swing back into this groove of doing these murders so there's a whole different like category that kind of like goes into that and it really depends on the individual themselves okay, okay what i think actually happened with btk was that he was possibly having health issues and then i think he actually had a child that was born during that time uh, okay that makes sense so the next one that i have is nearly all serial killers are white this is also false while there is a large amount of white based serial killers one in five serial killers is usually African-American. They kill dozens of victims. This is also false, as many serial killers have a body count under 10. Mm. About one in four serial killers will have a partner when it comes to murders. And serial killers have existed throughout history. And during ancient or medieval times, such murderers were thought to be the work of monsters, werewolves, vampires and witches hence where we get like for example with elizabeth bathory mm. the countess the vampire countess yeah so that could be a lot where those stories originate from of monsters werewolves witches and witchcraft was just kind of seen as being overall arching bad in oh, yeah. medieval times so yeah and i mean especially if you're a serial killer trying to <laughs> hide your identity or get people off your track, I bet back then it was much easier to just point the finger and be like, it's the witch! Then, mm -hmm. like, bring attention to yourself. So I think that was definitely a, a good way to kind of get them off your trail if you could find a, a hand excuse as to what else could be killing these people and not you. <laughs> Absolutely. But that does end my little fun facts that I had found while researching through things. But... Reed, do you have any questions for me or anything else that I could possibly elaborate on, even if that means I have to go look for it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I think most of the things that I thought of questions for along the way, you ended up answering. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I think you got all the bases covered. <laughs> yeah, uh, but if any of you listeners have any other questions that Kitty did not cover in this episode, 
feel free to shoot us an email or get a hold of us on social media. And I'm sure we can do a little follow up in one of the other episodes and answer any listener questions for sure. Absolutely. And just as one more quick note, just to recap what I said at the beginning, if you do have any psychological disorders that fall into the categories of like McDonald's triad or the dark triad, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a serial murderer, but if you do feel the tendency to cause harm to yourself or others, please seek out help. There are many resources available to you today. It's not shameful to ask for help. Definitely, for sure. Yeah, um, <laughs> I feel like especially American culture, we seem to put pressure on people that it's not okay to ask for help, and that is entirely wrong. It yeah, is 100% okay to ask for help if you need it, and there are resources out there. Uh, so definitely check those out. And like Katie said at the top, we will make sure that our suicide uh, helpline will be in the show notes. Uh, and if if you need anything, there's definitely uh, lots out there. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for listening. I hope that you guys did enjoy the serial killer deep dive. It's my first deep dive. We'll see if we continue these in the future, depending on how this one goes. Um <laughs> I hope that I was able to answer at least some questions that maybe you had when you hear these terminologies come up of like McDonald's triad or dark triad or how head injuries can like pertain towards serial killers. I hope that there was some clarification with all of it. And if there are questions like reset, please feel free to email us. I will try my best to answer them. I am not a psychologist just for <laughs> notes <laughs> yes <laughs> so i will try to answer them as clearly as i can however i do hope that this gave some clarity to possible confusion with other podcasts as well that haven't covered what all of this means awesome thank you katie all righty well we will see you next week bye <laughs> Thank you again for listening to Haunting Cases Podcast. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Haunting Cases Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, what do you say, listeners? Are, Are you haunted, haunted too? too?